0: you open to the book of Hosea. Uh, if you need to use one of our pew Bibles, that's going to be on page 703. As we were singing that last song, I just… Uh, that, that worship set in particular was amazing. Uh, Adam does a great job in, in reading our text and preparing our hearts for the message. Um, This week has been a strange week in in sermon prep. Usually I have a lot more sense of what I'm saying and doing, and and it's not that I don't this morning, but uh, it's weird how God just works in our lives in so many ways. It occurred to me this morning, you know, we've had four beautiful weddings of young couples in our church in as many weeks here at Christ Community. Um, We're studying, I've been thinking about Hosea, for those of you who know the message of Hosea, what the contrast that is. And struggling with some families in our church and their marriages, and it all kind of kind of coalesces, and it's it's emotionally difficult sometimes. And and singing these songs has really stoked in my heart the beauty of the gospel. Uh, I forget what song we sang. Jesus, what's the, song, the lyric? Something about you're you're the only name in my heart. Somebody help me out here. I just we were singing in a few songs ago. You know the one? Uh, what's the lyric? Jesus. Yeah, I'll sing no other name. Thank you, Andy. Just. Uh, just the, the the beautiful sense of, and if you don't know Hosea, I'm sorry. I'm kind of this is this is off script, so I'm just kind of winging it here. Um, if you don't know Hosea, I'm sorry. You'll you'll understand in a little bit. But just how beautiful that song is, because Hosea is a, is the the theme is idolatry. That's what we're going to be talking about for the next ten weeks, because that's what God's working in His lives of His people. And to sing, I'll sing no other name but Yours is so significant when we are a people so given to idols, even to this day, even the first song we sang, uh, bind my wandering heart to thee, uh, you know, just reminding me of the problem of God's people constantly, singing amazing grace and how grace bores us so often. And, and yet, and who knows if what, the chicken or the egg, which comes first, it's because Jesus is not the only heart in our soul we are wandering off or because we don't think grace is amazing. We, it is one of those things. It's a, it's a perpetual horrible feedback loop. And yet all this is coalescing in the message of Hosea. And um, I have no idea how I'm gonna segue into my introduction because it has nothing to do with what I'm talking about. But it is to say that what we're talking about, what we sing about matters. The things we're thinking about, how Adam and the team preps our hearts. If your ears are open and if you are attentive to it, the sermon most times has already been preached before I've even got up here, and that clearly was the case just now, which is why, if you can see, there's some tears in my eyes because that song's amazing. Thank you, God, for saving me because Hosea is a book for all of us, every single one of us. It is a book of heartache. It is a book of joy, but because that joy is betrayed, it is a book of heartache. If you're not familiar with Hosea, it is the story of God asking one of His servants to do something very difficult. If you've ever felt God's called you to do something hard, you haven't read Hosea. He says to his prophet, what I want you to do, Hosea, as a living parable, as a living illustration of what I am struggling with, with what's going on with my people whom I love, I want you to marry a woman who will not be faithful to you. I want you to marry a woman. I want you to commit yourself to a woman who will not commit herself to you, a woman who will turn from you to pursue other lovers, a woman who will prostitute herself a woman who will abandon you and your children for material goods and pleasure, a woman who will live such a debased life that the men she pursues in lust will get tired of her and get rid of her and look for the next flavor of the month. And you, Hosea, will literally have to find your wife at the slave market, and you will have to buy her back with money you don't even have, adding to your hardship, you'll have to buy this woman back. Yeah, that's, that story's in the Bible. It, it's a visceral story. In some sense, you know, I, I'm going <laughs> to preach the Word because that's what I do regardless of what we're comfortable with, her, but I also am aware that we've got these wonderful kids here. I see Ethan there and, and Genevieve, and I'm thinking, I'm talking about Hosea, I you know, Mom and dad, you guys are going to help them, right? But, but I love this couple. They know. that They brought their kids here because they want them to hear all that the gospel is. No other prophet captures the unique pain and heartache that God feels over the waywardness of his people. This is the story of Hosea, but in fact, this is the story of God and his people. And if we're going to be honest, if we're going to let God's word speak to us, this is probably the story of you and God, too. That might be a little bit painful because I'm talking about a woman who's unfaithful. I'm talking about a woman who's a prostitute. I'm gonna use the word that the Bible uses a woman who's a whore. And I just said, this is your story too. That's hard to hear. I know you might be thinking, wait a minute, six months ago in this church you called me a leper, now you're calling me a whore? Come on, what kind of pastor are you? You're supposed to make my esteem feel better, not, not insult me. Nah, well, that's what the Bible does. But, but make no mistake about it, friends. Make no mistake about it. This is a love story. But until you can appreciate what it is, you, you can't see what an amazing love story this is. The words of the prophets do sting and they do hurt. God's Word tends to do that. And, and because the stakes are so high. The stakes are so high so the words can cut deep sometimes when we're so embedded in our rebellion against Him. Sometimes that's all God can do is speak so sternly to us, and He does that through His Word, and, and it shows that so often we will exchange fellowship and communion with Him and forsake all that, and we'll settle for the trappings of religiosity and to make ourselves feel good that somehow we're moral because we're somewhat religious or whatever that might be, and, and, and it cuts God to the core. That, that's what He says here in Hosea chapter 6, verses 5 through 7 therefore, I know I'm jumping halfway into the book, we'll we'll get there, but he says, therefore, I've hewn them by the prophets. I've slain them by the words of my mouth, and my judgment goes forth as light. He's saying, I've said hard things. I'm, I'm cutting the people down. The words of my prophets are hard, but they're as clear as the noonday sky. You cannot say that this is as clear as light, because I desire steadfast love and not sacrifice, the knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings." but like Adam, they transgressed the covenant. There they dealt faithlessly with me. So, God's saying, look, I have to bring hard words, and I'm sending my prophets, and they're saying stuff that's cutting you to the core, and it hurts, but it is as clear as the sun can be. But because I don't want ritual, I don't want religion, I don't want you to go through the externalities, I want you. And the the reference to Adam shows that This is not just a Hebrew problem, that they transgress the covenant. This is not just a Hebrew problem. The reference to Adam Adam shows that this is a, a human problem, that we will always exchange relationship, communion with God for things that's easy and external, as long as we get to stay in control. And that's what we have going on with the people of God, Hosea's time. Now, it's fitting to start the book of the 12, our series on the minor prophets, with the book of Hosea, because then we might get a sense of the emotional context that goes all through 12 minor prophets. Without understanding that, you can be taken aback. I hope you are reading these prophets. It'd take you probably 30 minutes to read Hosea and less to read most of the other minor prophets. I want you to understand the emotional context because, man, the words of these prophets cut. God is not playing around. He says, I have hewn my people in two with the words of my prophets. and He's he's being very upfront, but we start with Hosea so that we understand the emotion of God behind this sin, friends, is not simply some uh, immoral behavior that violates some kind of impersonal law code by which then God kind of… in a kind of like a circuit court judge dispenses justice in kind of aloof, albeit annoyed way, as if by duty he's distracted from watching his favorite show and he just has to deal with this. That's not it at all. Sin is a very personal thing to God. It's, a, it's an affront to him. He's not an aloof judge. He's a devoted husband, and he's a husband that's crushed by his wife's adulteries but he's also a husband that will not be denied the love of this woman. In a very real sense, if you get Hosea's chapter 1 through 3, if you understand Hosea 1 through 3, you really understand the rest of the book of Hosea. So if you read it and you feel like, I don't understand everything after chapter 3, that's okay. If you get what's happening in chapters 1 through 3, because chapters 1 through 3 is the biography of Hosea marrying a woman who, certainly in our culture, the name is not flattering, Gomer, right? But in their culture, it's probably a very regular name. But if Hosea's 1 through 3 is about his marriage to Gomer and her infidelities and his heartache and his loving her continually, if you get that, you understand the rest of the book. You may not understand the details and the history and who does what, where, and when, But if you get the emotional pain and the love of this man and the betrayal and yet the love, you get the message that God wants to communicate. And by the way, you will get the message of all the minor prophets because that's really the theme that goes all through the book. Hosea sets the tone. The last verse of chapter 3, why don't you turn there with me? The last verse of this biographical section verse 5, chapter 3, really captures it. Hosea writes, afterward, well, after what? After, after, after what? After all the sin, infidelity, adultery, idolatry, betrayal, selfishness, oppression, cruelty, and so much more. Afterward, the children of Israel shall return and seek the Lord their God and David their king. And they shall come in fear to the Lord and to His goodness in the latter days. So, friends, there is good news at the end. This is a wonderful passage. This is those that reality we taught you last week that prophecy has an early, uh, a near-term, mid-term, and, and later-term, future-term fulfillment. This is one of those after it's all said and done, there's good news. The people of God are going to come back. There is good news, but there's so much heartache before then. The people of God shall return. Return is a big theme in the Minor Prophets. It's also translated repent or turn around. The Hebrew verb appears 83 times in these 12 books of the Minor Prophets. 22 of those times appear in Hosea alone. Hosea sets the tone. He says, return to me. That's not an expression we would expect to hear a spouse who's been betrayed to say. But that's exactly why God says it so much, because we wouldn't expect that. He says, return to me. God's love is faithful. God's love is unstoppable. It is an all-knowing love, especially in the face, especially in the face of our, 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 our idolatry, our adultery, and our misery. So, let's jump into it. Let me pray for us as we jump into the text of Hosea. Father, we thank You for your word. It comes to us in ways that are sometimes obscure. Three millennia ago to a people so unlike us, but the issues of the heart are identical. Father, in your kindness, would you help us to see ourselves in the Word of God? Would you help us to submit ourselves to the Word of God Father, we do not want to be a people of religion and and morality. We want a people that have been rescued by the hope of the gospel that is transformed. Father, would Your Word do the work that this frail preacher could never do. Amen. To be honest, if, if you haven't already picked up, this is a kind of unusual introduction. I have read, studied this book and read it at least ten times this week. I've read sermons by John Piper, by Mark Dever, and they all share a similar structure in that Hosea is almost impossible to break down into a structure. Uh, there's chapters one through three, that's the biography of his story with Gomer, and then from 14 to 13, it's all over the place. If you've read the book, you kind of understand that. One chapter is blessing, another chapter is doom and judgment. Some chapters, midway through, they flip-flop, and and what I think is going on there is I think what we're actually experiencing in the reading of the text is the, the passion, the confusion, the joy, the heartache of a husband who doesn't understand what his wife is doing and he's crying out, recalling the love and affection, but he doesn't understand her betrayal and why she would do this, and the emotional context bounces all over the place. I think that's actually reflected in the way this prophecy is written out, this this prophetic book is written out. So, it's great when you've read it so many times you get into the emotional text, it can be really confusing on the first glance, right? That's what Hosea is, now, we've already hinted a little bit about this man historically. He was a prophet to the northern kingdom of Israel in the 8th century. His ministry lasted about 30 to 40 years, 30 to 40 years, in the declining years under Jeroboam II. Now, if you want to get, write this down in notes, all of Hosea's life, by and large, his ministry takes place between 2 Kings 14 to 2 Kings 20. Now, remember, as I taught you last week, his name's not going to show up there because remember, what's the kings about? The books of Kings is recording the political decisions, the military, what they have done uh, as the people of God. It doesn't record their spiritual condition as much. So, Hosea doesn't show up, but what you see is all the craziness of their culture going on. But that's kind of where Hosea's ministry happens, 2 Kings 14 to 20. As I said, his life was to illustrate the message of God, to bring it to his people, and that's all we know about him in chapters 1 through 3. I I would like to think that Gomer responded and and beautifully came back to him, and they had a wonderful marriage from then on out. We don't know. We just know that this prophet was faithful. We know that this prophet had children with Gomer, and she may have had illegitimate children from some of her adulterous affairs, and Hosea loved them. Hosea did go to the market and purchase her back, gave her instructions of what to do, but we don't know how it ends. That's all we have of this man, this amazing man. And when people think of Hosea, they pretty much think of that story in chapters one through and three. Now, chapter one is, in some sense, a summary of the whole book in that we see the heartbreaking problem in verse two. We'll look at it in a little bit. We see God's judgment, verses four, six, and nine, and then the restoration in verses uh, 10 to probably chapter two, verse one. But chapters 1 through 3, unpack that even more, and then chapters 3 to 13, or 4 to 13, unpack it even more. You remember from last week, we talked about Hebrew literature. This is the way it works, right? So here's the issue, and as us us modern Westerners, we go, okay, well, let's move on, but he says, no, 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 here's the issue, but let me look at it three different other ways in these two chapters, and know that we're going to look at it another 10 ways in these other chapters. That's what's going on. So, let's read chapter 1 to get a sense of what's going on. The word of the Lord that came to Hosea, the son of um, Beri, in the days of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah, and in the days of Jeroboam, the son of Joash, king of Israel. Verse 2, when the Lord first spoke through Hosea, the Lord said to Hosea, go take yourself a wife of whoredom. And have children of whoredom, for the land commits great whoredom by forsaking the Lord. So Hosea went and took Gomer, the daughter of uh, Dibliam, and she conceived and bore him a son. And the Lord said to him, call his name Jezreel, for in just a little while I will punish the house of Jehu for the blood of Jezreel, and I will put an end to the kingdom of the house of Israel. And on that day I will break the bow of Israel in the valley of Jezreel. Gomer conceived again and bore a daughter. And the Lord said to him, call her name No Mercy, for I will no more have mercy on the house of Israel to forgive them at all. But I will have mercy on the house of Judah, and I will save them by the Lord their God. I will not save them by bow or by sword or by war or by horses or horsemen. When she had weaned No Mercy, she conceived and bore a son. And the Lord said, call his name, not my people, for you are not my people and I'm not your God. Verse 10, yet the number of the children of Israel shall be like the sand of the sea, which cannot be measured or numbered. And in the place where it was said to them, you are not my people, it shall be said to them, children of the living God. And the children of Judah and the children of Israel shall be gathered together and they shall appoint for themselves one head and they shall go up from the land for great shall be the day of Jezreel. Say to your brothers, you are my people. And to your sisters, you have received Mercy. Now, there's a lot of things going on there that can distract you, right? The name of Gomer, for one thing, all these names of these uh, kings, and, of course, the children's names, right? Um, Those things can be very distracting. Let me give you two concepts to, to hold on to to make sense of what's going on. Those concepts are the words wife and whoredom, and what those concepts are pointing to, those words are pointing to, is the concepts of marriage and prostitution. So, amidst all the details, Grab onto this. This is what Hosea, this is what the Lord wants us to understand. Marriage, prostitution, two concepts, two worlds that could not be more different from one another colliding into one. Purity on the one hand, pollution on the other. One speaks of the highest of virtue, doesn't it? The best of humanity. The other speaks of the lowest of our natures, the base of who we are. And God is right there, right in the midst of this, He is not afraid of these things. Friends, these concepts, marriage, prostitution, are so revealing to us about how we ought to think of our relationship to God. So, when we are obedient to Him, there is the blessing. It's pictured as marriage when we disobey, ignore Him. God sees that as prostitution. Our sin is a very personal thing. Our obedience is a very personal thing. This is very revealing to us how we ought to think about how we relate to God. More to the point, though, this is important because this is how God reveals how he thinks of us. Remember, these concepts are here in God's word. He views when we delight in him. It's like a husband or a wife on that wedding day. Man, and we've had some great wedding days here. And he views when we disobey him and we ignore him like prostitution. So there's a positive and a negative, isn't there? Friends, if you are a Christian, how intimate, how beautiful, how joyous the picture of marriage that God delights in you as a husband delights in his wife, right? Certainly you women can appreciate that metaphor. If you men have a little bit of difficulty with that metaphor, now let's pick the one in chapter 11, When God talks to us as a father who loves his son, his young son, there is no joy more supreme to a father than to be with his young son, to be with his sons. This is what he says in chapter 11. When Israel was a child, verses 1 through 4, I loved him and out of Egypt I called my son. I taught Ephraim to walk. By the way, let me just let you know when you're reading the prophets, you'll hear the word Ephraim, Samaria, they're both referring to Israel, the northern tribes. Ephraim was the most uh, politically powerful and Samaria was the capital. So we do this all the way, by the way, when, when, when we lived in the Midwest, people asked where I was from. Most people have no idea where La Habra is, so I said Los Angeles, right? It wasn't a lie, people just know Los Angeles. Or we'd say, we live 20 minutes from Disneyland right? So in the same way, the Bible understands this is how people communicate it. So they would talk about Israel, Ephraim, Samaria, because it's all referring to the same place. Don't get confused, but that's what's going on. When Israel was a child, I loved him, and out of Egypt I called my son. I taught Ephraim to walk. I took him by the arms. I led him with cords of kindness, with the bands of love. I myself stooped to feed him. Friend, God pictures his relationship with his people as one of intimacy, one of care, the passion of a husband, the strength of a father. Joy is the engine of His love for you. Get that. In both images, both metaphors, a husband and a father, joy is the engine of God's love for you. And it is a jealous joy as it ought to be as a husband jealous for the affections of his bride. It is a protective joy as it ought to be as a father protective of his young sons. Friends, pray that joy is the engine of your love for God as well. You need to get that. Yes, we can talk about being obedient and being devoted and being committed. Those are all great things, friends, but if joy is not the engine that drives your affections to God, Your faith will just be religion and and moral one-upsmanship and just kind of, I can do this. Because joy keeps your heart from being hardened when life gets hard. Joy keeps you loving people who reject the saving message of the gospel. Joy is what keeps you soft and a smile on your face in a world that rejects the Lord and is corrupted. It is just obedience and duty. You can be hard hearted. You can be theologically correct, but not loving towards anyone. Joy has to be the engine. We see that in God to us. Now, maybe you see, getting the picture of how horrible, how heartbreaking, how personal our sin, this picture of adultery and abandonment is to the Lord. So, in chapter 2, Um, The the metaphor shifts a little bit. Now Hosea is talking to the people of Israel as individuals, as children of mother Israel as the nation. So he's shifting gears a little bit. And he says this, plead with your mother. Plead for she's not my wife and I'm not her husband. Plead that she put away her whoring from her face and from her, her adultery from between her breasts. For their mothers played the whore, she who conceived them has acted shamefully, for she said, I will go after my lovers who give me bread and my water and my wool and my flax, my oil and my drink. And she didn't know that it was I who gave her the grain, the wine, the oil, and who lavished on her silver and gold, which they used for Baal." Friends, the idea is she… Israel gomer we think that we can find life joy fulfillment from all the things in the world and the lord saying no i'm the one that brings any good joy and fulfillment to your life and i give these things to you and what you do is you turn around and use them to continue to turn from me that's the idea here if you got hosea look at chapter 7 jump to chapter 7 verse 14 he's talking about how his people constantly turn from him, but here's also the dynamic. There is a sense because they they were reared in the things of God, they had the trappings of being a religious people, yet they lost the heart behind it all. And we see this happening in chapter 7, verse 14. The Lord says, they do not cry to me from the heart, but they wail upon their beds for grain and wine, they gash themselves and they rebel against me. Although I trained and strengthened their arms, yet they devise evil against me. They return, but not upward. In other words, they're kind of coming back, but they're not looking towards me. They're like a treacherous bow. Their princes shall fall by the sword because of the insolence of their tongue. Now, I want you to also jump over to chapter 11, verse 7. Now, as you're going to chapter 11, verse 7, keep in mind... That a lot of the idolatry, what's going on here politically, is that Israel was looking to Egypt in the south, Assyria to the north. They were looking for anyone to make treaties politically with to survive, and God saying, don't look to them, look to me. Because in looking to Egypt or Assyria, they also had to compromise themselves. And God was saying, trust me to deliver you, not these other people. So as you're reading, you will hear these things about alliances and allegiances, because God's word always comes to a historical context but don't miss the heart. Chapter 11, verse 7, my people are bent on turning away from me, and, they th- and though they call out to the Most High, He shall not raise them up at all. So, it's clear that the people of God constantly turn their backs on the Lord, and there's so many things we could list. If you read through the book, you just see It, it even got so bad as chapter 13 talks about human sacrifice, kissing idols, And and here's the thing that's shocking, if you read 2 Kings, there's all these references in Hosea to these calves, and in 2 Kings, when the nation split, they said, well, I don't want people going down to Jerusalem to worship at the temple, so I'm going to build golden calves, does that sound familiar to anybody in the Old Testament, and our people will worship there. The intention was those were supposed to represent Yahweh, but it just led them into more idolatry. What was the result of them turning their backs on God? What was the result of all this? Go to chapter 4. What was it like for them? Chapter 4 and verse 2, the Lord says, There is swearing, lying, murder, stealing, committing adultery. They break all bounds, and bloodshed follows bloodshed. Verse 3, Therefore, the land mourns, and all who dwell in it languish, and also the beasts of the field and the birds of the heavens, and even the fish of the sea are taken away. He's saying, look, it's just, it's, it's horrible. The priests, the leaders, the people, they lie, they steal, they'll kill. They're betraying one another. They're, they're practicing injustice and oppression. It's so bad, even creation itself is languishing. Anyone and anything to do with these people are suffering. So the question we have to ask is, Keep in mind, this is referring to God's people. We're talking about God's people here. Do you remember if you were here one service Sunday? Do you remember when we talked about David's prayer from 2 Chronicles 29? And What a different people it were. You appreciate now the end of David's prayer. Remember verse 18 and 19. He said, Lord, keep us here because we're so fickle and we will depart from you. This is the same people. This is what they did. They departed. Right? How did it get this way? Well, if you're in chapter four, look at verse one. The first time God is directly addressing the people of Israel. Hear the word of the Lord, O children of Israel. For the Lord has a charge or a controversy with the inhabitants of the land. I'm gonna bring three charges against you, here they are. There's no faithfulness, there's steadfast love, and no knowledge of God in the land. How did it get this way? Actually, there's two charges there, excuse me. Two charges, there's no faithfulness, no steadfast love, and no knowledge of God. So, in our translations, faithfulness and steadfast love might look like two things, but they're actually one concept. Um, I forget what it's called in English literature. It's a hendidus h- h- or h- h- hendiadys. hendiadys that's what it is. You know, we say things like sick and tired, nice and warm. Words that they only mean something together, but separately they don't communicate. So, the same kind of thing here. Faithfulness. Uh, he's talking about faithfulness and steadfast love. So, the two charges are that. There is no faithfulness, steadfast love. There's no knowledge of God. So let's look at them one at a time. So what's he referring to when he says there's no faithfulness or steadfast love? The Lord's referring to the covenant. There's no being faithful to the covenant. What the Lord is referring to is the very law that he had given to his people that mark them off as God's people. They've abandoned it. They've disregarded it. They don't think it applies to them anymore. They have moved on. Look at chapter 8. If you're in Hosea, go to chapter 8. By the way, if I didn't warn you, we're going to do a lot of flipping in Hosea. I hope you picked that up by now. Hosea chapter 8. This is what the Lord says in verse 1. When He's bringing the charge that there's no faithfulness, no steadfast love. There's no faithfulness to the covenant. There's no love for the covenant. Chapter 8 verse 1, the Lord says, set the trumpet to your lips. This is bad news. Let the people know One like a vulture is over the house of the Lord. He's referring to Assyria. Assyria now is going to smash them. Assyria, the very people you thought were going to save you are going to destroy you. By the way, the idols you think will give you life always betray you. Friends, we've got ten thousands of illustrations. That beer you think is going to take the edge off. That alcohol that you think is going to make you feel okay. Yeah, it might do the job but it will chain you to it and betray you and destroy your life. That's just one example of how that works. All these things we look to to help us end up destroying us. You thought Assyria was gonna be your savior? Blow the trumpet, because one like a vulture's over the house of Israel, why? Because you've transgressed my covenant and you rebelled against my law. Where were you? You were the people of the covenant. You were the people of the word. I gave my revelation to you. You've abandoned it. As a matter of fact, they ignore the words of the Lord. Look at verse 12 of chapter 8. Verse 12, the Lord says, were I to write for him my laws by tens, by ten thousands, they would regard it as a strange thing. What he's saying is, I could write a thousand Bibles and send them your way, and you're going to ignore them all. You're going to look at this and go like, what is that? I don't know. That's what he's saying. As a matter of fact, they thought the preaching of God's Word was ridiculous. Look at chapter 9. Go over one chapter. Chapter 9 in verse 7, the Lord says, the days of punishment have come, the days of recompense have come, and Israel's going to know it. The prophet is a fool, the man of the Spirit is mad because of your great iniquity and hatred. The prophet is a watchman of Ephraim with my God, yet fouler snares on all sides and hatred in the house of God. What is he saying? He's saying, you call the prophet mad. You think he's a fool. He's my watchman, and there are traps set all around him. He's hated in the house of God. That's what he's saying there. So, the, I send you my prophets, and you think he's crazy. As a matter of fact, you can't stand him. His life's in danger because you don't want to hear what I have to say. what he's saying. Friends, please, examine your hearts. Examine your hearts. The question we have to ask is, does God's Word stand in authority over me, or do you stand in authority over God's Word? And I don't mean just what you'll say. Everyone says the right thing. It's how you live. I'm going to be really honest with you, friends. I am gravely concerned in my heart that the church has lost its grip on the authority and the sufficiency of Scripture. And I'm so concerned, I think most Christians don't even realize they've lost their grip on it. And, yes, I am thinking now some conversations I've had with husbands in our church who tell me that, yeah, they're going to divorce their wives, Whew. calm down, and I'll take them to Scripture. Now take them to Scripture and say, what does the Scripture say? Love your wife as Christ loved the church and gave himself for it. And you're going to tell me you tried and that's enough? And yet, they don't even see it. And that kind of thing happens time and time again. People say they believe the Word of God, and I look at their lives, and they're not living by it at all. And this we're not talking mon, uh, weird uh, um, minutiae of technical theological uh, accuracy here. We're talking about stop your gossiping. Stop speaking badly of them. Love them. They won't even do it. And I wanna say, friends, take no confidence in the profession of your lips. If the way you live your life is in direct contradiction to the word, do not take an ounce of satisfaction that God's grace is towards you. If you see his word and you go, ah, it's not for me, It doesn't matter, because that's what's happening here to Hosea's people. And God says, you are committing adultery. You're a prostitute. I gave you my word, and you walk away from it. I'm gravely concerned that as a church, we are giving away our heritage and the greatest gift humanity's ever had in that word. Yes, I do cherish it, even though I just threw it. Friends, and go to Deuteronomy 32. You have to hear. This is, I want you to hear. I think this is the heart of God Um, coming through a very frail and and flawed person. But I think this is God's heart. Go to Deuteronomy 32. Um, Don't just hear my words. Here's the thing, guys. As a church, it doesn't matter how charismatic or persuasive someone is. It's God's word that matters. Nothing of what I say or any celebrity pastor you listen to say matters. It only matters so long as it's connected to the word, right? So we got to get back to the word. So Deuteronomy 32. All I'm saying now, it's not my um, just soapbox. I think this is what God says. Here it is Deuteronomy 32, verse 47 for it is no empty word for you. What's he referring to? The covenant, right? This is the end as they're about to go into the promised land. God's reminding them of all the important things, and Moses the prophet says to them, it is no empty word for you, but your very life. Guys, look at that. He said to them, take heart all the words by which I'm warning you today that you may command them to your children that they may be careful to do all the words of this law. Why? Because it's not an empty word for you. But your very life, your very life, is that how you see Scripture? That it's your very life. What what am I going to do in this situation? Well, what's God's word say? Well, this person did this to me. Well, what's God's word say? I feel like doing this. Doesn't matter. What's God's word say? Friends, don't be concerned about feeling good. Be concerned about being good. The two are totally different. Our culture wants everything about feeling good. Here's the problem with feeling good. Feeling is a personal, subjective, emotional experience based on whether or not you got your preferences. Being good is an objective standard that you conform yourself to, whether or not you like it or feel like it. Friends, that's so important because we live in a church and we have done this to ourselves. We have peddled ourselves as a purveyor of goods and services to make you feel good and we've done you a disservice. You are not about feeling good. We are about being good. Because that's life. And by this word you shall live long in the land that you were going in over the Jordan to possess. The word of God, the covenant, they were faithless to it. They didn't it, they didn't heed it. It didn't mean anything to them. It was just words on a text. It wasn't life to them. That was the first charge. The second charge was that they had no knowledge of God. That was it. You see that there in verse chapter 1 of Hosea, verse uh, two, 1. And that doesn't mean that they know things about God, obviously, right? It means, it means that they didn't cherish and place a value on Him. This knowledge of God doesn't just fill the head, it shapes the heart. This is what he meant in, back in Hosea, chapter 6, verse 6. It was one of the first verses we looked at this morning when he says, "'For I desire steadfast love,' and not sacrifice. The knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. You see, they had the offerings, right? They had the sacrificial system, but it was just rote ritual. There was, there was no joy that God had made a way for them. There was no worship in the offering. It was just rote ritual. How about you, friend? Is there joy that God has made a way that you were a sinner and God made a way, is there worship in the offering? God, I come to you, and man, I, everything I have is yours? Or are you just working through the routine? You just hear, because this is what you're supposed to do as Christians, or this is what your husband wants, or your wife wants, or this is what, what? You are on the step to being the people that Hosea is talking about. Friends, in short, they were no longer captured by the beauty of God. And so the shadow glories of this world captivated them and they went after it. And it only led to misery. So, what do we make of all this? What do we make of all this? We need to land this thing. So, I want you to hear God's heart, chapter 11 of Hosea, verse 8. This is what he says. I love this. But how can I give you up, O Ephraim? How can I hand you over, O Israel? How can I make you like Adma? How can I treat you like Zeboim? My heart recoils within me. My compassion grows warm and tender. Look to the left, chapter 10, verse 12. For, you, for sow, sow, like throw seeds, for yourselves righteousness and reap steadfast love. Break up the fallow ground in your heart. It's time to seek the Lord. That he may come and rain righteousness upon you. You have plowed iniquity. You've been, you've been giving into your sin and you've reaped injustice and you've eaten the fruit of lies because you've trusted in your own way and the multitude of your warriors. And he talks about the political situation a little bit. Finally, I, I want you to hear this. We're going to end with reading chapter 14. We'll go a little late, but we need to hear this. What, what What God would say to you if you have been wayward, maybe you haven't treated him like or loved him like you should, maybe you have been faithless to the covenant, what would God say? Chapter 14, return, O Israel, to the Lord your God. You have stumbled because of your iniquity. Take with you words and return to the Lord and say to him, take away our iniquity, forgive me, accept what is good and we will pay with bulls the vows of our lips. Assyria shall not save us. We will not ride on horses, and we will say no more, our God, to the work of our hands. In you, the orphan finds mercy. I'll unpack this in a little bit. Verse 4, I will heal their apostasy, the Lord says. I will love them freely, for my anger has turned from them. I will be like the dew to Israel. He will blossom like the lily. He shall take root like the trees of Lebanon. His shoots shall spread out. His beauty shall be like the olive and his fragrance like Lebanon. They shall return and dwell beneath my shadow. And they shall flourish like the grain. They shall blossom like the vine. Their fame shall be like the wine of Lebanon. O Ephraim, what have I to do with idols? It is I who answer and look after you. I am like an evergreen cypress. From me confess, from me comes your fruit. And finally, whoever is wise, let him understand these things. Whoever is discerning, let him know them. For the ways of the Lord are right, and the upright walk in them. But transgressors stumble in them. Here we go. If you want to eliterate this in chapter 14, if I have been wayward, if we have been wayward, what do we do? Number one, verse one, return to God how do we return to God? Verse 2 and 3 tells us we repent of our sin. We recognize our idolatry. So how do we return? We repent of our sin. How do we repent of our sin? Recognize our idolatry. And what is God's response? Verse 4, God says, I'm going to respond to you. I'm going to come back to you and look at verse 5 through 7. He's going to restore his people. Verse 8 is a bit of a reprise. Oh, Ephraim, what a, why? I am nothing like your idols. What have I to do with idols? He's saying, I'm nothing like them. And then finally, verse 9, reflect. The one who is wise, think about these things because you will flourish. So, if you like alliteration, chapter 14, return to God, verse 1, repent of your sin, verse 2, recognize your idolatry, verse 3, God will respond graciously. He will restore you, verses 5 through 7, reflect on His words. The reality is, the words of Hosea is that if we have loved our worlds more than his word, if we loved this world more than his world, if we loved our kingdoms more than his, if we pursued our pleasure more than his purposes, we have committed spiritual harlotry, we are guilty, we are like Gomer, we are the whore. But that's the whole point of God's command to Hosea to marry a whore. Get this, because God knows what he's marrying, and He loves us still. That was the point. Now, the real question is, do we really know who we are? And I think at this point, you're probably saying, well, you made it clear we're the whore. No. Do you really know who you are? You are the one that is loved by a faithful unstoppable, all-knowing God who knows who you are through and through more than you know yourself, and He loves you still. That's who you are well, so how can that be then? If I'm, if I'm Gomer, if I'm the people of Israel, if I'm the one that's the harlot, the whore, the prostitute, how then can he love me? Because Matthew 2.15 tells us that there was a son that did not become wayward, that he called his son from Egypt. And the perfect obedience of Christ stands in place for our disobedience. The faithfulness of Christ stands in place of our adulteries. And in writing to the Roman Christians, Paul says in Romans chapter 9, he quotes from Hosea himself, Uh, This is not in my notes, so i just got to find my way there. Romans chapter 9, Paul says, as indeed, Paul says, as it says in Hosea, those who are not my people, I will call my people. And those that were not beloved, I will call beloved. And in the very place it was said to them, you are not my people, there they will be called sons of the living God. This is the ground of our joy, our hope, our certainty Is that Jesus Christ was the faithful bride we never could be. And God loves us still in Him. Friends, please go home, examine your hearts, ask yourself have you given yourself to idols? I can think of one that our culture gives itself to all the time the idol of autonomy. Yes, we don't have statues of Baal or Asherah poles, but we have idols. The idol of autonomy is the idol that the church, that this culture worships all the time, that my life is my life, that I get to do what I want to do, and no one tells me otherwise, you're not the boss of me. Coming to Christ recognizes is means I recognize I'm not the boss of me. I am a servant. I am a slave. I have been crucified with Christ and the life I now live. I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Friends, we are not our own. Examine your heart. Have you bowed down to the idol of autonomy? Maybe the idol of convenience. Maybe the idol of comfort. Maybe the idol of family. There are many idols out there that we bow down to regularly. Please examine your hearts. Turn from those things to the true husband of your soul. Something we all have to do. Those are hard words, but they are good words from a God who loves us. Let's pray. Father, thank you that you did not leave us in our sin, in our harlotry, in our adultery, in our idolatry, but you love us still. That you know what we are and what we are not, and you love us still that you will never abandon us and never forsake us. Thank you that because we could not do it, this is exactly why Jesus did. Father, it is not in our faithfulness or in our obedience we stand in, but we stand and worship and are amazed at the faithfulness and obedience of our elder brother Christ, who did this on our behalf. And we thank you for it in his name. Amen.